Sam. Yeah, Don? How much did you drink? I only drank a little. But when I did, I turned into another person. And that person drank a lot. Where'd you hear that? I I heard heard it through the grapevine. Welcome. It's the AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour, featuring the collected voices of Alcoholics Anonymous. I'm Don, an alcoholic in Greensboro, North Carolina. Hey, Don. Hey, everybody. I'm Sam, an alcoholic in Palm Springs, California. How's every little thing, Sam? Every little thing is awesome, Don. It's, it's going like to be all right. Fabulous. Yes, everything's going to be all right. That <laughs> all right. sounds like a song. I think it is. You know, we've been getting a lot of mail. Yes, we have. I thought we'd read a few of them today. That sounds awesome. Here's a note from Mo R. of the Burleson Group in Burleson, Texas. He writes, I recently lost my sponsor of many years due to health issues, not drinking. I was then without a sponsor. And like the podcast stated, you can't always find a sponsor with more sobriety. That was back on November 21st, the episode titled, I Didn't Want to Be an Alcoholic. So he goes on, I currently have 34 years sober one day at a time. I started looking right away. I found a man from another local group that I thought would be good. After talking, I asked him to be my accountability sponsor, one who would help me if I was struggling. And 34 years, I still do at times. And most of all, call me out on my shableep. I know, I sometimes I'll, I'll run into a little shableep. happens. I might. <laughs> we had some good belly laughs and he agreed. I'm 72 years old, and I don't get around so good, but still drive. He recently called and said, I'm going to an 8 o'clock meeting at my group. I'll pick you up. Well, okay, how did he know I had got very irritated at an employee at a local fast food place? I believe that's how my higher power worked through my sponsor. I hope this has stayed in the boundaries and made a little sense. Well, it certainly made sense to me, Mo. It's exactly the way it works. <laughs> it's like when I'm, you know, if I'm having a hard day, that's when my sponsee calls. If Or perhaps my sponsor will get in touch. That's my higher power at work. And it's also my sponsor and my sponsees thinking of others. When I'm all up in me, that's when those program calls come through, right? Yeah, it, it happens more frequently than not. It's you should stop amazing. being all up in you all the time, Don. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to get up on you in a minute. <laughs> well, also, uh, here's another thing that happened. So just recently, Brad G., who was a guest on The Boiled Owl, was in Ocean Isle Beach in North Carolina, and he sent me a photo of a bulletin board in the meeting space where he was attending a meeting. And there's lots of paper on it, lots of posts, including a flyer about the podcast. So I wanted to give a shout out to the folks of the Grissett Town Group who meet three times a day, Monday through Saturday and twice on Sunday in Ocean Isle Beach, North Carolina. They're listed at WilmingtonAA.us. Thanks for putting up that flyer, y'all. What is the Boiled Owl? You said he was a guest on the Boiled Owl? Oh, that's that old podcast that a couple of guys used to do. (laughs) Which would be us. (laughs) That would be us. (laughs) Well, Don, today's guest is Dennis S. 
We'll get to know him a bit, and then we'll dip into the Ask It basket, which used to be Ask the Old Timer, but Don had to go and change things because he got inspired while in New York. <laughs> yeah, we'll change things around here, too. Keep on. <laughs> Now a word from our sponsors. We don't have sponsors? What are you thinking? Oh yeah, we don't do the commercial sponsor thing. Since the grapevine is self-supporting, we don't sell ad space in our magazine, on our website, or in our podcast. Grapevine doesn't even accept donations from AA members. If you want to support Grapevine and this podcast, visit aagrapevine.org slash store. family. My name is Dennis. I'm an alcoholic. My home group is Group 124 in uh, Dardine Prairie, Missouri. Uh, we meet Thursday nights from 7 to 8.15. My sobriety date is September 10, 1989. I have a sponsor who has a sponsor, and I sponsor men. Uh, recovery has saved my life. I'm really glad to be here. You guys look like you're having a good time. Oh, Dennis, we have way too much fun doing this. <laughs> and, but I just kind of like nerding out at the conference where you and I first met, the National AA Technology Workshop. Man, we had some fun doing nerdy stuff at that thing as well. I think maybe it's just alcoholics who are sober tend to have fun, though. Well, what I want to know is what is a technology workshop? What do you do there? We play games. <laughs> you know, the National AA Technology Workshop was a manifestation of realizing AA is starting to use a lot of technology, and how do we do that to best serve our fellowship? How do we do that to make sure that it stays anonymous? Uh, you know, I remember out of our first uh, workshop, one of the things that came up a lot was online meeting lists that reference a meeting that doesn't even meet anymore. How do you keep those things updated? Yeah, and those things have been worked out somewhat with the Meeting Guide app. Now, as far as the future of technology and AA, I mean, I think that's one of the impetus for the podcast that we're doing. Just two weeks ago, we recorded Josh R. and talked about the Meeting Guide app that you and I learned about at the NAATW. But we're not going to just nerd out about technology. Let's learn a little bit about you. What was going on in your life that made you do something as drastic as go to an AA meeting? You know, I, I had been thinking about this. One of the things I found interesting was I ran into some personal decisions early and found a program in the Navy that was a half day, weekdays that was going to help me stay out of trouble. And I volunteered and went to that. A few years later, I also realized that uh, I was still having trouble. And I went to my first AA meeting. And I can't even begin to tell you whether I got 30 or 60 or two days. I can't tell you. But what I can tell you is 10 years later, I was at that place where I knew I couldn't keep doing what I was doing. I didn't know what else to do. And I made that phone call to a hotline. Uh, I asked, do you know where there's a meeting? I happened to be in the D.C. metro area at the time. And I was working uh -huh. out of a ADC uh, map book. I didn't have a map in my pocket that I could just pull out and say, hey, tell me the directions to here. man on the phone uh, gave me a meeting for uh, a Monday night. Uh, I called on Monday, and uh, I said, well, do you know where there's a meeting at tomorrow night? I believe that this is my higher power stepping in because back then people could be a little hard-hearted and could have easily said, if you want to get to a meeting, I've given you a meeting that's just a mile down the road from where you are. 
And instead, he said, oh, well, there's a meeting at this place. I proceeded to do all kinds of things that night that made it just too late for me to get to that meeting the next day and went to work. And I came back to my apartment. And what I knew deep in my soul was if I didn't get to a meeting, I wasn't going to make it. And I knew how to get to this meeting that he'd given me for Tuesday night. And, and I went to that meeting and I, you know, I knew what was going on there. I had some information. I didn't walk in. I had a very high bottom. I hadn't lost everything. I had a good job. I had an apartment, had a vehicle. I mean, you know, I'd lost stuff along the way, let's be clear. But I went there because I knew I needed to be there, and I hoped that there was a solution there. Dennis, what do you mean that you weren't going to make it? Because you said you still had a lot of the things that a lot of people lose before they come to AA, their wife, their job. I had really gotten my toes in the door with a job, a profession that I have grown to love and loved at that very moment. And they had sent around that piece of paper that said, you know, we might ask you to pee in a bottle every now and then. Mm -hmm. What I knew was in order to not do something that might violate the paper, I was going to go back to drinking hard. And hard drinking kicked my behind. (laughs) And I just didn't want to do that. And I couldn't do the other because I really wanted to hang on to this job. It was just that important to me. And the only way I knew out was to come to the fellowship and stop what I'd been doing and start doing something else. So you had been doing what you'd been doing for, did I hear you right, for 10 years trying to control it? Yeah, the farce, okay? Yes, I lived in the farce for a long time, you know, that I was going to come up with. Uh, I, I was just reading in uh, Bill season, you know, the illusion that I can do controlled drinking. The lie we tell ourselves. Yeah, we're good at it, aren't we? What did you try that failed? Well, I had done that, like, you know, half-day outpatient thing early in the Navy. I'd come to AA for a little while and said, okay, well, I'm not going to drink hard, but I'm going to go back to doing these Mm -hmm. other things. All right? The interesting part of all of this for me in this story is on my third try of walking in doors and saying, you know, I belong here, willingly, in between two and three, somebody had said, we think you need to go. And I went, oh, no, no, I don't need that, okay? You know, and and so, you know, there's the manifestation of my arrogance of, you know, I willingly walked in more than once, but somebody says I should go, and I'm like, oh, no, you can't, you don't understand. Yeah, Yeah, we alcoholics don't take direction really well (laughs) unless we've given you permission to direct us. (laughs) So what was the wall to go into AA for you? What was the fear? What did you have to walk through to go to AA and surrender and do what AA asks you to do to stay sober? You know, I was just in that lifestyle of partying. Even though I had drove in blackouts, uh, woke up in a car with a policeman tapping on the window, Mm -hmm. had more than one night in jail. Even though I had walked through those things, I still thought I was living kind of normal. To somebody who is in the grip, it looks normal. Exactly. I surrounded myself with people who partied like I partied. So what I was doing was normal. Right. And so it was just the denial of I have a problem, even when the hard facts are hitting you in the face. So that was the wall that first surrender, that first real admission, what I'm doing is not working. And if I don't get AA, I'm not going to make it. And since then, you know, I've realized, you know, they talk about jails, institutions, and death, right? I have come to believe that the death they refer to is not necessarily a physical death. It, it can be quite often, 
but I think it's also the spiritual death of having had the experience of living a clean and sober life, going back out, realizing there's a better life, you can't get here, and you just suffer and die and just keep walking that death march. Yeah, that was certainly true for me. People would say to drink is to die, and I always thought it was hyperbole. People do die. People do drink again and die. But for me, what was reality was the way I was living just before I came into AA. I was spiritually dead inside. I I was so miserable with the world and everything in it. And I could see that I was completely chained to alcohol and there was nothing, nothing I could do to control it. And it was it was painful. Well, I want to say something about that, too, because the spiritually dead inside, now that I have a spiritual life, I get that. But when I was drinking, I didn't have a spiritual life. So if you had said to me that you were spiritually dead, I would have written you off as some religious kook. But what was going on was the lights weren't on. I was just making it through life. I was just moving through the days. There was nothing that was really a spark of life going on for me. That proves to be spiritually dead for me now, but Mm -hmm. then no, it was just like, I'm just existing. So Dennis, what was one of the things that AA asked you to do that you thought was crazy (laughs) and you did it and discovered that it really worked? It's a good question, Don. You know, this is the last stop on the block for me. I didn't come in here. It wasn't any of it sounded crazy. Not when I really came here. That in-between time, you know, I was just looking on how to throttle drinking enough that I could be participant in the life that was around me. But no, when I came here, I was in complete surrender. There wasn't nothing they could have asked me. And and it went like that. You know, I wasn't here probably 30 days before somebody was going, hey, what are you doing on Saturday? I, said, I don't know. Well, we've got to, we're reviewing some literature and we'd like you to come and participate. And you know what? There wasn't anybody that invited me anywhere for a long time. So, you know, I was all about it. And then uh, I don't know, a couple of years later, somebody's going, what are you doing on Saturday? You know, and they drug me out to some electrical co-op building in an office in the back. And it was a host committee for an annual convention that was being put on. And I was like on the, the board and I worked with that convention for years and years and years. And in fact, you know, I got it to be humbled when I wasn't working with it anymore. And I went to the convention and somebody was trying to tell me, well, look, this is how you fill this out, you know, and I got all up and up in their <laughs> face about, you know, you don't know who I am. And that bondage yourself, that arrogance, you know, I had to come back to them later and say, hey, look, you know what? I was awful. And please forgive me, you know. Dennis, I'm so glad that you said that because I wanted to ask you, I mean, you've been sober for a while. When did you get sober again? September 10th, 1989, 33 years. All right. So definitely been sober for a while. And I'm going to guess that you have got the results of working the steps later in your sobriety. Has your life shown up in a way that was just like, oh, I'm broken. Something's not right here. You know, the big book talks about relief from the body itself. I bump up against that with regularity, that my arrogance, my ego gets in the way of me fully showing up for myself and for those around me. That's when your sponsee calls, (laughs) you know, you know, you hear something on the radio that reminds you, or are you reading something through your daily readings? And I am today surrounded by a cadre of men who are 
they're North Stars for me. Yes, I've been here a long time. And so when I first got here, the dances and the events were everything. And today, they aren't. The everything is a few years back, I started going to a meeting that is full of old timers. And the reason why I went there is, is because, and I'll tell this story, okay? I had rotator cuff surgery on my left shoulder, and I was going to several meetings. But when I was in the younger meetings, people would be like, oh, what'd you do to your shoulder? What happened? Are you going to be okay? Oh, yeah, I just had, you know, oh, man, I, just, you know. I went to my old timers meeting, and one of the guys goes, hey, what'd you have done to your shoulder? I said, well, I, I had rotator cuff. Oh, yeah, I had that. You're going to be all right, you know. <laughs> yes. And, that's all you need to hear sometimes is that you're going to be all right. And so these men, these North Stars for me, have walked through the stuff that I'm coming up on. I'm coming up on retirement. It's not far away. It's 565 days if we were counting. Uh, but, <laughs> but who's counting? Yeah. <laughs> uh, but, you know, they're drawing Social Security, signing up for Medicare. How do you handle your finances dropping by a third? How do you you know, the, the surgeries, the health things. I find support for those topics here from men that I trust. And so I say that I go to that meeting to charge my batteries so I can go to these other meetings and charge other people's batteries. I, I love that you, you call out that distinction of some meetings I go to to charge my batteries and then others I go to give what I've been given. Right. Yeah. Dennis, thank you so much. Stick around. Because, because it's time for the Asket Basket. What's that? That's the name Bill W. gave the basket that was passed around for questions at conventions. We want your questions for our guests. General recovery questions, newcomer questions, AA history. Basically, it's our AA AMA. AA Ask Me Anything. Got a question for the Ask It Basket? Call in and record it at 212-870-3418 or email it to podcast at aagrapevine.org. You can find these and more at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. And now let's dip into the basket. All right, here, let's see. Victor M. in Tucson, Arizona asks, why is the seventh step different from the description? The step uses the word shortcomings, but in the book, it says character defects. That's a good question, Victor. Let's see what it says in the literature. The seventh step reads, humbly asks him to remove our shortcomings. And the seventh step prayer in the big book, which there's not a lot of information in the big book on the seventh step. It's just this prayer. My creator, I'm now willing that you should have all of me, good and bad. I pray that you now remove from me every single defect of character, which stands in the way of my usefulness to you and my fellows. You know, in the 12 and 12, defects is mentioned four times in step seven. It's mentioned a lot of times throughout the book. But character defects specifically is stated, we have seen that character defects based upon short-sighted or unworthy desires are the obstacles that block our path toward these objectives. That's on page 76. And then shortcomings is mentioned only once in step seven in the 12 and 12. And here's that excerpt. The whole emphasis of step seven is on humility. It is really saying to us that we ought to be willing to try humility in seeking the removal of other shortcomings. That's also on page 76. So the shortcomings and defects. Yeah, but I've heard this for many years that 
Bill didn't like to use the same word twice all that much. You know, that's got to be in play here, too. That's the purpose of a synonym, so you don't keep repeating yourself all the time. Dennis, what are your thoughts on this question from Victor? Don, uh, the first thing I did is you all read this and we're going through it. Uh, I pulled up my, as Bill sees it, it has a little directory in the front. It's got a big section, a lot of pages with character defects. So there must be a lot of character defects in our lives. (laughs) I went and looked under shortcomings and it said, see character defects. (laughs) There you go. So it seems that they want to roll that all up into one thing. And this is my take on it. Uh, Not so much specifically with the step in the literature, but with the concept. And the concept for me has always been that character defects are part of my being. They are things that I do with some regular way. And I have always heard that a shortcoming is a defect that I act out on. I like that. That makes sense to me. The defects of character, the potential of all the things that I do and the shortcomings are the actions where I've acted out of my character defects. I was at a big book study last Monday we read the line on page 103, the well, the end of the book before the stories. And it says, we've stopped fighting anybody or anything. And I've got a note there that on page 84, it says, we've stopped fighting anything or anyone. So is it anybody or anything or anything or anyone? And I think you just found a new Stump the Thumpers question. <laughs> Well, I call the AA archives. Michelle M., archivist of the General Service Office of Alcoholics Anonymous, writes, I'm finally circling back with a reply to your query. Fortunately, there are writings by Bill W. himself on his use of the phrases defects of character and shortcomings. The first letter is from March 7, 1963. Quote, Thanks for your inquiry, requesting to know the difference between defects of character and shortcomings as those words appear in the steps. Actually, I don't remember any particular significance in these phrases. In my mind, the meaning is identical. I guess I just used two ways of expression rather than to repeat myself. It's just as simple as that. End quote. The other letter is dated November 16, 1965. Quote, When these steps were being done, I didn't want to repeat the phrase character defects twice in succession. Therefore, in step seven, I substituted shortcomings, thereby equating shortcomings with defects. When reading, most people do equate that way, and there seems to be no difficulty. I used them as though they both meant exactly the same thing, which they appear to many people. I guess it's a problem of semantics, all right. For example, it is possible to say that each time you fall short of an ideal, to that extent, your character is defective. Looking at it the other way, shortcomings can be read as a mere failure to do what should have been done. So I guess you'll have to take your pick. End quote. Dennis, thanks for joining us today. Absolutely my pleasure. When I'm asked, I say yes. yes. That's what we're supposed to do. Thanks so much, Dennis. And, uh, and Victor, also, thank you for writing in that question. Michelle at the Archives also directed us to Bill S., a big book historian who wrote Writing the Big Book, the Creation of AA. Here are some of his thoughts on the question. 
Well, thank you, Don. My, my name is Bill. I'm an alcoholic. I'm active in AA. I've been uh, sober 41 years. I celebrated my anniversary last week. And I, I just think this is just an absolutely great question. And uh, but, but, but when I come at it, I come at it from this a little bit different perspective. I mean, Bill said they were equal to him as far as he concerned. He just didn't want to use the same words. But what well, we have a problem here is that there, there people have an expectation of absolute verbal precision in the big book. And that's just not there, you know? There seems to be a large group of people that it was written in such a way that the, there, there is this absolute precision for absolutely every word. And I get cranky about that at time. I call those people the AA word police. So the problems are multiple. First of all, it's important to realize how powerful words are. They're all too often we give them way, way, way too much power. And, and words are meant to be descriptive of the process, but not as some locked in sort of thing. I mean, I mean, words force us to put process into little thing boxes. And then we think those things are real. I mean, uh, is character defect a thing? And if so, exactly what kind of a thing is it? Or is a shortcoming a thing? And what kind of a thing is that exactly? And, and if they are two different, then how are they different? It's just crazy. Words are powerful things, but if we take them as absolute values, we're in trouble. It just doesn't work that way. That's not what things are. Now, you know, I've got a friend who tells all his sponsees that character defects are things that we do wrong and that shortcomings are things that we should have done that we didn't do. That's really a clever way of looking at those words and seeing what they actually say. And I would certainly go with that. I go with that when I talk to people that I sponsor. But did Bill Wilson see that? Did Bill Wilson mean that? Was Bill Wilson trying to convey that kind of a distinction when he was writing the book? No, I don't think so. So there's that problem, the problem of words. The second thing is that another common but not universal problem in AA is the belief that the big book is divinely inspired. But I got these two quotes that are in the front page of my book and the last page of my book. First one is from Bill Wilson, 1954. He said, some people reading the book now, they say, well, this is the AA Bible. And when I hear that, it always makes me shudder because the guys who put it together weren't a damn bit biblical. I think sometimes some of the drunks have the idea that these old timers went around with almost, almost visible halos and long gowns and they were full of sweetness and light. Oh boy, how inspired they were. Oh yes, but wait until I tell you. And indeed, wait until he tells you the story. And then in the, in the same year, 54, he interviewed Dorothy Schneider, Clarence Schneider's uh, from Cleveland, his wife. And, and, and she says, the people, she's talking about the people on the West Coast, the people talk as though there were 100 men and they went around all saintly and were taken straight up to heaven. And God just guided Bill's hand that Bill just sat there and let the words come through. Actually, Dorothy said it wasn't anything like that at all. And no, it wasn't anything like that at all. Let's talk about the history of how the big book got written. It was just chaotic. I don't know how else to describe it. I mean, I mean Bill writes the first two chapters in May, June of 1938. He writes to Bill's story and he writes, there is a solution, right? And he does all these tinkering. The very first version that he wrote in the middle of 1938 and the book that was published in April of 1939, they whacked 900 words out of Bill's story, 17% reduction. And they took 2,300 words out of There is a Solution. They whacked 40% of that chapter right away. So you've got all this messiness going on here. It's just, and, and then Bill doesn't start writing again. He doesn't write anything for three months. Finally, on September 15th, he starts writing. 
again. And he writes the rest of the book. It's done by December 31st. So in three and a half months, bang, the rest of those chapters are all pumped out. You know, so we've got Bill doing the writing. Hank Parker's is leaning over his shoulder, bitching at him all the time about what he's writing. We got two editors who aren't even alcoholics that get brought in to work on the book. And then they, they do the multi-lift copy and they ask for suggestions and they get tons of suggestions, which if you look at the P Hazleton publication, the book that started it all, you can see all of those things put together, the ones that were taken and the ones that weren't taken and who made those decisions. So, uh, you know, I, I love this little, little quote that I got from Bill Wilson. He writes to Dr. Bob Smith on November 3rd, 1938. He's sending him five chapters of the book. And, and, and he says to him, he says, Bob, I'm turning this stuff out as fast as I can, being only once corrected dictation. You can't call it serious writing. Man, give me a break. And then and then we get to the multilift copy comes out, and there's all kinds of changes that is noted in, as I said, in the book that started it all. But the big one comes from Dr. Howard, the psychiatrist in New Jersey. And he says, listen, you this book is really directed. It's just punching you in the chest saying you have to do this and you have to do this and you he says oh you can't tell alcoholics anything you need to take those directive sentences and make them suggestive so bill wilson does that after hank parkers makes a power play because bill wilson did not like the change what he wrote but hank, hank told him if he didn't make the changes he was going to take take it out of his control and give it to six or eight guys in the program and they were going to do that so they took all those, all these musts out, all these things you got to do. But you know what? If you go through the big book today, the first 164 pages, I can show you 31 sentences that have 33 musts in them that just didn't get changed. And why didn't they get changed? Because it was a fly-by-night thing. They were just, they were trying to get that damn book out because they were going to sell them by the carloads. And they were going to make a ton of money off that book to keep the paid missionaries going and the string of hospitals that Bill Wilson was still hoping to get done. So the point is that, that looking for absolute certainty in words or the belief that this thing is divinely inspired so those words have to be absolutely carved in stone someplace is just crazy when you look at the history of how this book was written. It's a brilliant book. It saved millions of lives for the last 80 plus years. I mean, it's getting it done. But when you start going into the trenches of, of, of just, oh, uh, practice these principles and all our affairs. So there must be a certain principle for each one of these 12 steps. And you go back and try and do all of that. That's just crazy things, people. It's crazy things. <laughs> so take it easy. <laughs> Chill out. Chill out. Grapevine is looking for your story submissions. AA in the Military. Stories are due February 15th, 2023. Did you ever serve in the military sober? Were you ever stationed overseas or on a ship while trying to stay sober? What were AA meetings like in the military? What were some of the challenges? Did you find AA while serving? Share your story by February 15, 2023 via aagrapevine.org share.
Daphne, dear, daughter of mine, I have a terrible hangover. Could you please practice later? But, Daddy, the band is playing tomorrow, and I have to practice. Okay. Oh. Hey, Stephanie, can't you play something the dog doesn't know? <laughs> it's really not that funny. Thanks for joining us. The AA Grapevine Half Hour Variety Hour is posted every Monday and is produced by AA Grapevine, Inc. We don't speak for AA as a whole. We share the experience, strength, and hope of members to help others recover from alcoholism. Podcast info, including how to call in, is at aagrapevine.org slash podcast. Find AA Grapevine on Instagram and the AA Grapevine channel on YouTube. All things Grapevine are available at aagrapevine.org. If you want to know more about AA, Google Alcoholics Anonymous and your city or visit aa.org.